0: Belfast IRA murder, why the case isn't closed. Ukraine, UK service chiefs plan for the worst. Syria, has Assad won? Iraq, have the people lost? And is it last orders in the officer's mess? The idea that I've said that we should put up prices for our brilliant servicemen and women is outrageous. The Sinn Féin leader, Gerry Adams, was arrested last night in connection with the murder of a woman more than 40 years ago. Jean McConville was abducted by the IRA in 1972 after she was accused of being an informer. Her body was recovered from a beach in County Louth in 2003. I'm joined today by Professor Michael Clarke, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Professor Clarke, first of all, just tell us how this came about.
1: Uh, essentially, this is a, was a notorious murder in uh, 1972. As you say, Jimmy Conville's body was subsequently discovered. Um, but because of a project being run in Boston, a number of, of IRA uh, activists agreed to give their stories uh, as part of a history project on condition that they wouldn't be uh, reported until while, they were st- while those individuals were still alive. As a result of a court case in the United States, those conversations now have, uh, do have to be accessed or can be accessed. And British intelligence, we know, you know, is lent on American intelligence pretty heavily. So things that were said apparently in confidence for this history project have now become into the public domain and have produced a degree of evidence which has led to the opening of cold cases, of which this is probably the most notorious.
0: Indeed, Christopher, we're talking about these Boston tapes, aren't we? Are you surprised by the kind of impact they've been having?
1: Not since... They
2: were forced to release, because it released the uh, contents, or some of the contents, and it's already started. It is not the first thing. Gerry Adams isn't the first consequence of this. The lesson of this at the moment, and it's only at the moment, is that um, the war, the peace process, still goes on. That's the first thing to remember. The second part of it is the animosities don't. And I'll give you one example, or even two examples. One is that one of the sons, one of the eleven children or uh, that were in of Jimmy McConville McConville. he says he knows who killed his mother he he sees them occasionally he knows them by name but he will not tell the police because he's been threatened that one of his children will be murdered and he believes it and the second Mm -hmm. thing the reminder is that there are four times as many as divisional barriers on the streets of Belfast today as there were before the peace process.
0: And Professor Clark, if we just look at events of this week, earlier on, the Northern Ireland Secretary Theresa Villiers wrote to the families of those who died in the, so, both the so called Ballymurphy massacre in 71, 1971 and the Le Mans bombing of 1978, ruling out independent reviews into both incidents. There seems to be this kind of two pronged approach at the moment, where, whereas, you know, inquiries or not, and then the, the idea that there are some kind of re- reconciliation. How, how would you? kind of judge the situation on the ground in Northern Ireland these days.
1: It is very difficult because um, any peace process is going to involve, effectively, some uh, amnesties for people who, you know, otherwise ought to face a court of law, and that always happens. It happens all over the world, and it's happened in Northern Ireland. But there's a very—it's a very difficult process to maintain. And what clearly the government is trying to do—it made it made a number of amnesty deals, both secret and open, during the 1990s. It's trying to maintain those amnesty deals in a sense when it—it's it, very hard to defend them in. in, in as a matter of law and order but the government is clearly worried that the peace process may still unravel. That may seem odd to us mm. because we're taken for granted but there's real worry in Whitehall that this process could unravel and the, the up The uptick of of terrorism in Northern Ireland, which we've seen in the last two or three years, the security services have regarded as serious, but not strategically serious. Mm. But it would become strategically serious if the peace process began to reverse.
0: And Christopher, do you see that that could, as as Michael was saying, that, that the peace process could unravel in Northern Ireland? And do you think that there should be this level of delving into the past?
2: It's always going to be delving in the past, and it's not just a question of delving into the past. Um, In the intelligence services, the uh, Peace Service in Northern Ireland, etc., and the people that were involved know a lot of the victims. They know a lot of the perpetrators, right? But, as ever, if you wanted to prosecute anybody, it doesn't matter if it's a high-rise politician or somebody who is a foot soldier, one of the difficulties is getting evidence, an evidence that would actually be presented in court and actually would stick in court, mm. and that's where we are today. There is always the danger that, the, for example, the breakaway groups, the real IRA, the uh, whatever they are now called, um, they will do exactly what happened. If you remember when the IRA first started a whole peace thing, what was the result of it? The Provisional IRA, and that is what I think in Whitehall is. It's always the possibility that this will go on. The the, the best I hear is this is generational. Mm. people that were supposed to be uh, perpetrators of of, of a lot of the violence and also the people that still feel grieved, they've got to carry on, they've got to go before this will ever be resolved. What
0: what about the British soldiers and the former soldiers who served in Northern Ireland?
2: It just just shows. I mean, you you talk to British soldiers that served in Northern Ireland uh, at whatever level, and some of them, we're we're talking about starting in 1969 now, Um, they turn around and they still feel it. And a lot of them will turn around and say, OK, it's a political decision. But if you take Warren Point, for example, as a, as a great scar uh, in, in that process, you have to say to yourself, uh, they say, well, listen, listen, what was it all about? Why should these guys get a, uh, away from it? And the, the, the murder that we're talking about now, don't forget when it happened, 1972. Mm. It was the year of Bloody Sunday, and that was the height The height of the animosities.
0: All right, gentlemen, stay with us. Russia has expressed concern over the increase in NATO and US military activity near its borders in response to the situation in Ukraine. NATO insists the deployments are simply to reassure its worried members. Professor Michael Clark, you're still with us. Um, Just remind us who's been sent and what and where.
1: Well, essentially, the uh, Supreme Commander of Europe, General Breedlove, was sent away uh, a couple of weeks ago to come back with a plan for reassuring NATO's allies, and that plan was to involve uh, air, land, and sea forces. And what we've now seen is uh, a, an air policing mission over the Baltics, which feel the most vulnerable just at the moment, led by Poland, and a number of Allied uh, forces have contributed to that, and Britain's got uh, four typhoon aircraft involved in that. And now 600 American troops, have got, which is a battalion, have gone to Poland, and then there are yet to be announced some uh, naval uh, moves, but in general, what Breedlove is doing is, as it were, showing NATO mobilising for reassurance. Mm. And there Russians don't like it, but this is NATO showing its East European members, its new members, that Article 5 should mean something. And
0: the state of play in terms of Russian forces or indeed pro-Russian forces?
1: Uh, no direct threat uh, at the moment Uh, it's all political I mean our eyes are all on uh, eastern uh, Ukraine but the the issues to worry about at the moment are Transnistria in Moldova which is right next to Romania and of course Moldova is essentially uh, Romanian ethnically and that's a now NATO member Russian minorities in Estonia And Latvia, 40% Russian minorities. And in Lithuania, further to the south of those three countries, Kaliningrad. Uh, There isn't a big Russian minority in Lithuania, but Kaliningrad, a a Russian naval base, Mm. uh, is right in the middle of the territory. So the three Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, feel, for slightly different reasons, extremely vulnerable. And Poland, big country, uh, always worries about Russia, now feels that uh, they have a real security challenge on their eastern border. Nothing has yet happened. It's all political. But mm-hmm. the political uh, atmosphere has, has ratcheted up three or four notches in the last month.
2: Christopher? Mike, you know, uh, it, nothing yet happened. It's all political. If I were running staff college, yeah, what I would do
1: is... Is, is Just is,
0: imagining that. It,
1: yeah, they, they missed one there, Christopher. <laughs> they really missed an opportunity there.
2: Doesn't you guys have to take me seriously <laughs> at this moment.
1: <laughs> if
2: I were running... Just suppose I was running the staff college. I think if I wanted to do a TTW, transition to war exercise... I might lay this out. I might say, you know, it's only political, etc. But what do you have to do to cope? Now, we're not going to war. Everybody's very clear on that. Neither side is, wants to go to war. But if you slot other things into it, you've got it. Now, the second part of it, I'd say, now, what's happening to the British forces? What's happening to their training programmes? What's being diverted? Do you
0: know what is happening?
2: Yes. I mean, we, we've got... We've got in
0: terms of exercise programmes involving the three services? Uh, there
2: the are two, uh, two exercise programmes I know of that involved suddenly Eastern Europe,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which didn't, weren't, weren't set up to involve Eastern Europe in the first place. If you look, for example, the number of sorties that the uh, reconnaissance aircraft are flying at the moment, I can't remember, 17 or 18 sorties, that's a, a lot of hours that, that they're flying. They wouldn't have been flying them normally. Um, but it's also, uh, it takes people out of their normal programs. We talk about coming back from Afghanistan, one of the difficulties of Afghanistan, that you haven't been going through training programs, for example, elsewhere. And so th- there we have two things. One is what we're not doing. The second thing, part of what we're doing, but we're actually grouping as uh, a as, as combined operation. And don't forget the Navy in this. Mm. Uh, a combined operation. And that's, that is quite a high level so put that into your staff college uh, <laughs> uh, exercise and say, and you say to your senior officers, OK, where do you think this might end? Because one of the biggest problems we face is the failure of intelligence. And so how are we going to rectify that?
0: Uh, Professor Clark, if you were at staff college and you had a, an essay to write about where we're at now in Ukraine, the situation, how serious is it? What, what, how would you judge the, 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 the crisis, if, if you call it that at the moment?
1: I think it is a crisis because we're looking at some assumptions that we used to take for granted, which we now cannot take for granted. And one of them is that uh, borders don't change by force in uh, Europe, in the modern Europe, but actually that looks as if it might now happen. There's a reasonable chance that eastern Ukraine will be occupied by pro-Russian separatists with Russian force backing, and will start to call itself something else. So we, we, we are in the territory now of changing borders, and that's why NATO members are very worried. Because once you start to change borders by other, anything other than consent, then you're in a new ball game. So I think it's serious in that respect. It's also serious in respect that NATO um, it now looks much more relevant in its fundamental role than ever before. But does it have the forces to meet that fundamental role? And in terms of British forces, of course, we, we're structured for light operations. We've been mm-hmm. doing relatively light operations for the last 20 years. If we have to get heavy again, if we have to do heavy operations, put two brigades together into a, an armoured division, okay. a real armoured division, would it would it convince anybody in Europe these oh, days?
0: All right, <laughs> Professor Michael Clark, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Thanks for your time today. Sit Rep with Kate Still to come, allegations the government's defence cuts were made without any idea of what the forces were needed for, and what price a gin and tonic in the mess.
3: This is BFBS sitrep.
0: Now to Syria, President Assad is putting it about that he's won the war. Some Western leaders are silently agreeing, but the fighting goes on. Former ambassador to Syria, Sir Andrew Green, joins us. Hello to you. Uh, so, has President Assad won?
4: Has he won? No. Uh, there are still large amounts of territory that he can't control and it's not likely that he'll be able to. Uh, but on the other hand, has he lost? No. I mean, it's a complex situation, as everyone knows, but, and he does seem to have made some gains recently. Uh, I think the other point to make is that can he lose? No, he can't lose, because he has clear Russian support, Iranian support, and from the uh, Shia uh, militia in Hezbollah. So, 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 Andrew... He's unbeatable. Mm.
0: Unbeatable, and By yet, military means, yes. In many ways, rebels still fighting on. A long war of attrition, then?
4: Yes. Um, I think that uh, people are now, particularly the, the minorities in Syria and some of the more moderate Sunnis, uh, are looking at the situation that has now been reached. They can see that uh, the Alawites are going nowhere, uh, and they don't like the idea of uh, the possibility of a rule by extremists. Uh, uh, Islamic jihadists so I think that um, the uh, present regime is gaining some silent support uh, from a greater number of people but at the end of the day, as you, as you say, once you're into a civil war, you've got a civil war. No one thinks the jihadists are going to go home and make tea. I'm afraid we're in for a long haul here.
0: Christopher, um, obviously Russia, a close ally of Syria, and the international community is seeming to be able to do very little to influence anything there. How will it be reacting to the way the international community has been behaving over this? <laughs>
2: I think you've got to the, you've got, actually got to a point now where people can quite see, seriously see the further state of this long war of attrition, and as uh, as Andrew says, you know he's not lost it. Which in this sort of war is the equivalent almost of saying right, he's won. And when you say he's won, somebody has to decide whether he's won. So you don't have white flags. You don't have uh, tables. So forget Geneva two, three, four, five, six, 3, uh, anything like that. There's another aspect of this, and this is a regional aspect. Um, who is supporting him? You start thinking of Hezbollah in, out of Lebanon. You start thinking of Iran. You start thinking, in other words, of Shias. And on the other side, you start thinking of Sunnis. And then you get the idea that this is not just a war between him, i.e. Uh, President Assad and um, some some, uh, misguided, misgrouped rebels. It's also a war by proxy. And that's what's going on in the Middle East at the moment. In Syria, a war by proxy with people like Saudi Arabia, extraordinarily interested in what the result might be.
0: Which leads us to the the very interesting situation in Iraq at the moment, next door, holding parliamentary elections. Little chance that Prime Minister Maliki will be replaced. Um, I've read, I've read, Sir Andrew, that, that some people in Iraq, the best they're hoping that this that this actual election may prevent all-out war. How do you see this?
4: Well, I'm a pessimist, I'm afraid, as far as Iraq is concerned. Uh, I don't think that these elections will solve anything. Um, I think the present regime is perceived by the Sunni as being a, a Shia dictatorship uh, and really just a, a, an, a, almost the same as Saddam, but um, a Shia rather than Sunni. Um, so, I think what we're going to see is a continued disaffection of the Sunnis, um, and uh, the Kurds, of course, in the north have been semi detached for a long time. It doesn't seem to me that these elections will make any significant difference to all of that.
0: Christopher, since the withdrawal of US troops in 2011, um, what situation has been developing in, in terms of the different divides in Iraq? Uh, uh, and even most before obvious, that?
2: Yeah, I mean, the most obvious one is a complete reversal of power. Uh, yeah. official power. And so, you see, Saddam, Sunni. Right. Then the majority of the people, Shia, and felt desperately sort of put upon. And so you turn this round, and you've got a different regime. And so you get into the business of anger politics, revenge mm. pol- etc. Mm. So mm. what is building up, and what has built over the past 12 months uh, and longer in Iraq, you have the uh, Sunni groupings, whether they are affiliated to, let's say, we'll call it al-Qaeda type organisations or not, uh, actually getting control, but not being beaten, again, not being beaten. And so effectively, in in Iraq, once the um, Western forces left Iraq... They left it to its own devices, except for one thing. We we, 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 we professed not to have an interest because we'd left it uh, being able to run it off. In fact, what we left it is a country that's got quite a lot of oil. So we still have a very good interest in in the outcome of this. But fundamentally, we have here Sunni versus Shia. We have in next door in Syria, Sunni versus Shia. And that is what we should be thinking about in a greater <laughs> term. And that is the, the possibility that this could spread
4: Uh, into other parts of the world.
0: Do do you see that, Andrew, Sandra Green? I mean, are they self-contained to the countries or is there an overspill?
4: They're not self contained. I agree entirely uh, that uh, there is one situation reflects on another, and indeed, uh, I believe the Iraqis have, have recently attacked a convoy of aid from Syria to the uh, rebels in, 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 in the west of uh, Iraq. Uh, the other major change um, that results from these recent events is a huge increase in the regional power of Iran. Mm. Uh, which, of course, is worrying the Saudis a great deal, uh, which ex- and that in turn explains why they are helping their so, lot in Syria.
0: Sandra, if I may just ask you to imagine that you were the British ambassador in Baghdad at the moment, what would you mm. be trying to do?
4: Stay the hell out of it. There's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing we can usually do.
0: Sandra Green, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. The government has been accused of failing to fully assess the risks faced by the UK before the latest round of military cutbacks. A senior group of MPs and peers has been investigating the UK's national security strategy and has concluded there are gaps in the plan. BFBS reporter Toby Sadler spoke to the former Foreign Secretary Margaret Beckett, who chairs the Joint Committee.
3: He asked her what's wrong with the current strategy. I think most of its faults stem from the fact that quite understandably it was prepared really in rather a rush it was a new government they had to do the spending review they had to do the defense and security review and they had decided to continue with a national security strategy which my committee completely applauds and to continue to have a national security council slightly different form that doesn't matter very good thing but it was done in a mad rush Uh, and sometimes it shows also what does concern us and what we've been saying now ever since 2010 really is that we don't think the government takes enough voices from outside the Whitehall in a circle in looking at these things and we feel that and, and it's an inevitable I mean my committee is full of very very experienced people we know how easy it is to get distracted from the long term by the pressing events of the day to day And we are concerned that that is increasingly happening, that there isn't the horizon scanning, there isn't the forward thinking that a strategy should contain.
2: Do you think the strategy has taken into account the recent cuts in the military and how that would
1: impact our security?
3: Well, no. Uh, I mean... The government insists, uh, must put their point of view, that actually it wasn't that rushed and everything was taken because what you would do in a logical world is you would make your defence and security decisions based on the context of what you thought your national security interests were. We don't think that happened last time, the government says it did. Nobody else really agrees. But what we're principally concerned about is that there's another national security strategy document due, now in, not until 2015, if then. um, And that the same, there's no indication of forward planning that would mean we didn't repeat those mistakes. And we were stunned when we took evidence from the Secretary of State for Defence to be told that, that actually the National Security Council hadn't discussed in advance the changes that were being made in the armed forces. They've been informed about them. Well, you'd expect that. But that's not the same thing as influencing the decisions from the context of our national security interests. And that's the kind of thing that concerns us and we don't want to see repeated.
2: The report also talks about the UK's position in the world shrinking as the sort of power of Asia rises up. Do you see that also affecting our military position and how do you think that will
1: affect security long term?
3: One of the things that concerns us about the tone of the existing national security strategy is that it's, it says, um, you know, Britain's influence in the world won't diminish. And uh, the most recent reply that the government made to our report from last year, um, they they more or less reiterated that and said that in fact our influence was expanding. Now. We all want Britain to to have its proper place in the world, and to have as powerful a place in the world as we can. And we all recognise the influence that Britain can exert. But simply to sort of assert that nothing is going to change, nothing is going to diminish, seems to us to be unrealistic. And it it doesn't tie in with what, for example, former Secretary Gates said recently, or indeed some senior people in the armed forces have been saying.
0: That was Margaret Beckett speaking to Toby Sadler. Christopher, do you think she's right, what she's saying?
2: I think the committee is absolutely right. I mean, let's put this in perspective. Um, New government comes along, says we're going to have a defence review. Fine. It also says uh, the uh, national security strategy has to be part of that defence review, but we haven't actually got the council or the committee in place yet properly, uh, and therefore we can't actually listen to it. There's nothing for them to say. Mm. It is a fundamental principle right from 2010 when that review appeared. And the, and, and people were pointing to the strategy paper with, within it. You can have all the armed forces that you can possibly afford. But unless somebody tells you what they may want you to be doing over the next 10 years, what the policy is going to be, you won't know what the formation is. And so that review was all about money. We've now get moving towards one in 2015, and this is the great test. Will anybody do something about... Deciding what the United Kingdom wants to be doing in the for the glo- in, globally for the next say know, 15, know, 20 years.
0: I know we, we say this over and over again, and I suppose it seems pretty obvious in a way. But what is the big problem about getting the policy together?
2: Uh, three things. One um, is is that nobody in government is actually much interested in global policy because it seems, A, very difficult to work out. And, two, there are a lot of restrictions. One, are you on America's side or not? What is the role of NATO or not? What are your ambitions? Who's going to get into that sort of discussion? They don't. And one of the problems of not doing that is that within Whitehall and within the the Cabinet especially, uh, it's the same group, small group of people, who are coming up with the same arguments... Uh, all the time, and very, very few cabinet ministers are brought into discussion. If you're running health or, or, or education or whatever, you're not brought into discussion, except that when you go into cabinet, where well, you might say, be able to say to the Prime Minister, listen, there is a cabal. Right. Says that we've got to get this right, it doesn't happen, and that's the problem. The, the, I'm the not thing, alone in this, the uh, Americans got the same
3: problem.
0: Her fear that she was expressing was that the national security strategy will, will perhaps not have been got together properly before the next review. Is that a real concern? Is that likely to happen?
2: It is very likely to happen, and i give you one how
0: can it be avoided. Uh,
2: well, I'll give you one example of, 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 of why it is. Is, is, is is because nobody is discussing what post Afghan policy is for the United Kingdom. And you only have to have a small glitch to make people have to think, well, we haven't got this right, have we? And that glitch at the moment is called Ukraine.
0: All right, Christopher, stay with us. B F B S Zip Rep. A defence minister says she is not calling for the price of alcohol in military bars to be increased. It follows calls from MPs on the Defence Select Committee to scrap subsidised alcohol in military bars. Anna Subri, the Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Defence Personnel, Welfare and Veterans, told MPs she wanted to curb a culture of drinking to the point of oblivion. Well, now in an interview with BFPS, Ms Subri has sought to clarify her stance. I'd like to deny completely and totally that I ever said that our brilliant servicemen and women should not be um, getting any form of cheap drinks. On the contrary, I don't have a problem with people who do a brilliant job having a drink. All I've said is like everybody else, we should all drink to some level of moderation. But the idea that I've said that we should we should put up prices for our brilliant servicemen and women is outrageous, and you can put that out wherever you want. Anna Subri there. Um, I, that would be very unpopular, wouldn't it, Christopher?
2: Swap me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a lot of absolute nonsense, isn't it, really? <laughs> no,
0: I mean, is everybody the price get really... of drink, you know, it's important.
2: The price of drink is very, very important, and it doesn't stop people drinking. I I mean, that, You can a... go to any university, as you know, I mean, I bet you were in the Union Bar, Students' Union Bar. That's a could,
0: Mandela Bar. That was my place. The Mandela <laughs> Bar. Well, you
2: see, um, um, probably when you were there, it was 75 pence for a pint of beer. I can't well, remember
0: you... how much the snake bite was, I have to be honest. Right.
2: Well, there you are. I mean, it, it is a nonsense thing. However, um, there is a great tradition in, in the services, like a lot of other organisations, that drink pays an important part. Uh, And it's it's part of the whole thing of gathering together. And you always get it cheap. I mean, it's not that long ago since the Navy had to stop giving free rum out uh, to 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 its ratings. But
0: but Madeleine Moon on the Defence Committee had said this week that she was charged just a pound for triple gin and tonic on a visit to a military bar in the falklands i mean that that's quite low isn't it let's face it
2: it is quite low it's certainly more than you have to pay in in, in, in a pub but it isn't a pub I and mean, that's th- the whole point nobody's out there to make a profit out of it you know this is this is not weather or whatever they're called i mm. mean this is a straightforward uh <laughs> but mess. there is
0: quite a serious drinking culture that does does cause problems sometimes especially we, we have many reports about uh, drinking problems when people leave the forces as well I mean, it is it is an issue, what she's talking about. She's highlighting the issue that sometimes there is a drinking problem that needs to be taken seriously. Yeah, I think But that's not necessarily about the price in the officer's no, mess. No,
2: and the price of booze is not going to change the fact that if you go out on the streets of London today, for example, that you'll probably find about 20% of people who are living in shop doorways are ex-military, mm. but it's not because of the booze, is mm. what happens after. All
0: right, Christopher, let's, let's move on from the drinking stuff. Uh, a big speech in Washington tomorrow.
2: Well, it's really really important, this, because, I mean, we've been discussing sort of what's being happening in Ukraine, what's been happening in the Middle East, etc. And one of the points we were making earlier, and that is the relevance, for example, of NATO. And Chuck, um, uh, Chuck Hagel, who is the American Defence uh, Secretary, is making a big speech in Washington, which is a policy speech. And when Americans make policy speeches, they tend to stick to the policies rather than just round turning uh, about six months later. And it is the future and the relevance and the job application of NATO. And this is the biggest talking point in Europe at the moment. For example, Ukraine, can NATO actually, has it has it got a role? And where is that future role, for example, after ISAF and, and, and Afghanistan? So we really ought to be listening tomorrow afternoon, I think three o'clock London time, uh, of what he has to say.
0: All right, Christopher, thank you very much. And that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SitRep. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com. We're back at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now.
4: And music Music. for the British forces. This is BFBS.